Guys, just so excited to be here with you today, excited that you've joined us for our online campus as we worship the Lord together. Wherever you are, we love you. In fact, hey, uh, not just a shout out to everybody, but I want to give a special shout out to those of you that are in Kerman right now, watching friends in Kerman. I was there with you uh, just about a week ago, and uh, it was awesome. So love that you guys are gathering out there together, and uh, hope that you make it a great Sunday at uh, North Point Kerman out there. Hey, uh, before we get going, there are a couple of uh, announcements that I just want to make to you. First of all, I can't emphasize enough um, what Kim was talking about, small groups in a box. Guys, when you come to Jesus, you become a part of the family of God. You're not just a believer, you're a belonger. You belong to the family of God. And uh, doing small groups is a way of getting connected to others. You know, there are dozens and dozens of commandments of the Bible, commandments of Jesus that you can't even fulfill unless you're connected to others. So I just want to encourage you to develop some friendships, get connected to people. It is easy. And we have a staff here that will help you know how to do it. So if you're interested in that, make sure that you go to northpoint.org box and we'll get you hooked up. And then the other announcement just wanted to make before we begin, we are absolutely thrilled at North Point to announce that in cooperation with the county health department and looking at all of our options, with, um, with the virus count uh, going lower and the vaccine getting out, as we've been dialoguing, we actually have uh, members of the county health department that attend North Point that are members here. And so we've had meetings with them, we've been talking, and we now feel that it is safe to begin to offer an indoor worship alternative. And to do that right in our main worship center, we're excited about that. Uh, so right around Easter time, we're going to give you the details in the coming uh, weeks. In fact, this week, we'll send out a very specific email with lots of information about how we're going to do it because uh, we, we want to make sure we're clear about that. But the most important thing is that you know right around Easter, it may be on Easter weekend, that we actually open up our doors for an indoor worship option. Now, it, indoors will be mask mandatory because we're going to be singing together inside. Uh, so if, if you're coming indoors, we want you to know we have an expectation that you will merit wear a mask. But we also are going to continue our outdoor option. If you prefer, boy, I just want to, I just want to have the fresh air. I don't want to wear a mask. Um, even though we wear masks outside as well, I know there are times when you're sitting there listening to the teaching that you want to pull that off. Well, we're still going to continue an outdoor option. Uh, and we've got the most incredible big screen coming that's going to make that uh, uh, engaging. And uh, it, it's just going to be cool. I can't wait for you to see it. So we'll continue to have the outdoor option. We, of course, still have our online campus. We're not taking anything away. We're only adding two. And uh, we're going to have a, uh, this indoor opportunity in our worship center at about 25%. And we're going to do that two services. Uh, one service at 9 a.m. and the other service at 11 a.m. Again, that's 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with the outdoor option and, of course, the online option. So just wanted to make sure that you look out for the email or look on social media for those things to come. We're so excited about that. Now, uh, Kim mentioned that today we're continuing a series right up until Easter as we go through this season of Lent that we're talking each week about the cross. And we're talking about how the cross addresses multiple dimensions of our lives. In fact, the cross provides answers to some of our biggest problems. If I could just put this another way, 
For the Christian, the cross is not just a religious signature. It's not just a piece of jewelry that we wear around our neck. No, for the Christian, the cross is the thing that completely shapes everything else in our life. And if you're new to Jesus Christ, you'll find that the cross reshapes everything or actually changes everything. And so if you remember in week one, we talked about how the cross brings freedom. In week two, we talked about how the cross deals with our guilt and brings us forgiveness. Now today, I want to talk to you about how the cross affects our identity. It reshapes our self-image, our self-understanding. It, it affects our self-appreciation. And what the cross really does is, is it completely and profoundly affects and remolds you psychologically. And it does that for me too. And so before we begin, I just wanted to share a story with you. My friend Kennedy uh, agreed to get on camera and share her story. And she's got a powerful testimony about the effect, the profound effect that knowing Jesus has made in her life through his work on the cross. Go ahead and take a look at this. I always thought that when I would reach out to get help that it made me like a weak person. But, you know, you can struggle, but it's okay to struggle, and no one's story is, like, perfect. And even going through, like, a lot of things doesn't make you, like, less of a person to God, and it doesn't make Him, like, see you in a different way. And I always had to think about that, like, God still loves me, even if I sin. And, you know, I'm His daughter. I deal with a lot of anxiety and, and social anxiety, and especially, like, Going to church, like for a while, I didn't want to come to church because I was really anxious. And dealing with anxiety, like on a daily basis, is always something that's really hard to struggle with. Like even doing, like doing school and reading my Bible and trying to like focus on things and spending time and feeling like, like oh, I'm not good enough, and you know I'm I'm never going to be good enough. I always felt like a burden to my friends. And um, I always thought, like, why talk to God? Because, you know, He knows everything you're going to say, but I'm like, why pray if He already knows what I'm going to say? You feel so overwhelmed with, like, grace and hope once you realize that, like, you can pray. You don't, you don't have to, like, keep everything in all the time. Like, you have God. Like, He's, he's always there. You're not going to get judged. He's not going to judge you. Like, there's nothing wrong with being able to share with God and telling, like, my friends and stuff like you can talk to me but you can also talk to God too like pray like pray about it like it's not going to solve everything instantly but it's going to over time you're going to see a lot of difference in your life and I have felt so so much better ever since I changed small groups and I was in such a great environment with a bunch of girls that I knew that I could like open up and talk to and especially my small group leaders and I felt like so safe with them and even sharing like all the time on Sundays in small group knowing that like they'll text me and they'll tell me that they love me and that they're praying for me and I just feel like so surrounded by people that love me and knowing that like I'm not alone, and I actually have people that care about me, and I don't need to listen to things my anxiety tells me. God's love is like way too much, and I don't, like all the time I don't feel like I deserve it. And I don't feel like 
There's so many other things that God could do in other people's lives, but yet He's choosing to still work with me, and I'm like still waiting to see what God has set out for me in my life and the plan that He has for me. And you know, whenever I feel just like really sad, like I want to give up and I feel worthless, just repeating to myself over and over again, like I'm not done yet, and God still has a plan for me. Like if He wakes me up every morning, I'm not done yet. Thanks, Kennedy. Jesus Christ just transforms people. And I'm hoping that's what he's doing for you in this season. Now, I want to start reading from a passage out of Romans chapter 8. And then I'm going to do a little reading out of Romans chapter 7. And it's a long passage, but there's a dynamic that I want for you to see here that that Kennedy alluded to. It says, starting at verse 1, chapter 8, Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's a powerful word. That's a scripture worth memorizing. I like the way, by the way, the message uh, paraphrase kind of phrases this. It says, No longer am I to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. There is a new power at operation within me because that's what the cross does. Now, let's go on. Verse three, it says, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Wow. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Now, I want for you to notice here before we go on, Paul kind of describes two parts of a person's struggle. First, he says in verse seven, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so but those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. In fact, this this two parts of a person's struggle, he actually goes in a lot more detail in chapter seven. Look what he says in chapter seven a little earlier. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And look what he says of himself. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Again, almost describing, again, this struggle in his own identity. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me? Probably you feel that way sometimes. I know I do. Now, he turns to the church again, back in chapter 8. Let's continue at verse 9. Speaking to the church, he says, You, however, are controlled not by that sinful nature within you, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Which, by the way, is what happens when you choose to entrust your life over to Jesus. He says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, I love this, 
Abba, Abba Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, when you look to Jesus Christ on the cross, from this passage, what you see again are two sorts of things, kind of a left and a right of who we are. There are really two moral truths about us, and they're actually super practical. If you're going to have a cross-centered self-appraisal or a cross-centered esteem, first, Jesus on the cross means that there's something seriously wrong with me. There's something more seriously wrong with me than I ever thought, or it wouldn't take the death of the Son of God to deal with it. I mean, this is what the reality of the cross of Christ actually means, that there is something so wrong with me, number one, that Jesus had to come and suffer. And when I look at the cross, that's one of the things that I see. But also, when I look up at the cross, I also see that there must be something profoundly valuable about me because he was willing to do it. Now, how do you know how valuable something is? Well, what are you willing to pay for it? How valuable are you? What was God willing to pay for you? You understand what I'm getting at. When you see Jesus... Going to the cross. First you see, I realize there must be something terribly wrong with me. Something more than I ever thought. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to do this. But at the same time, the fact that he did it tells me there must be something intrinsically valuable about me because he was willing to go there. Now guys, I want to say this to you. These are the building blocks of a cross-centered self-image that we all need to have at the very beginning if we're going to have a good sense of self so let's dig into this. I want you to write this down. I've already given it to you, but I want for you to write it down. When you have a cross-centered self-image, you're able to say, I understand that there is something seriously wrong with me. In fact, something more than I ever thought possible. There's something more wrong with me than I ever knew. In other words, I'm more disordered. I am more flawed. I have more issues than I've ever let myself imagine. So much so that only the death of the Son of God on the cross could actually deal with it. And friends, part of becoming a Christian is learning to take a look at that. When Paul says, oh, what a miserable man that I am who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin, you have to ask, what, what is it that Paul's doing here? See, Paul is coming face to face with something that you and I need to come face to face with. In fact, it's what I typically call the Isaiah effect. Because do you remember about 700 years earlier, Isaiah, what he said when he encountered God? You remember what happened? Not when he encountered religion, but when he really encountered God, what's his first response? He says, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. By the way, he was a pundit. He was a prophet. He used his lips for a living. His lips were his best quality. What Isaiah is saying is, even my best is gross. I'm more messed up than I thought. See, what I'm talking about is, there needs to be in your life a sudden awareness of your lacking. You know, it's like you realize how before God, how underdressed you really are. By the way, 
Has that ever happened to you? You've gone to a party only to get there and find out how totally underdressed you are? Well, that's sort of what what we are in the light of God's holiness, that there's an awareness that comes into our mind that says, "I'm, I'm absolutely inadequate. Now, guys, I want to say to you that one of the hindrances to you and I coming face to face with this effect is that there's a problem with culture today in that there is a strong trend to avoid believing that. Why? Because today, culture and secular thinking says that when it comes to my personal preferences, when it comes to my personal character or my morality, cultural, culture is generally saying there's nothing wrong with you. Culture today says whatever you feel like you want to do is fine. Whatever you choose is fine as long as you're happy. And culturally, I'd say there are some contributing factors that have, that have happened over the last 30 years that have really led us that way. A couple of them are, are, well, I'll just share a couple with you. Number one, in America today, our feelings have become God. And what I mean by that is that our feelings or our preferences have become the number one factor for choosing how to live. I feel, therefore I am. And we see this play out today when it comes to sexual preferences, gender identity, life choices, behavior patterns of all different types of lifestyles. And so I want for you to think about this because the Christian ethic is actually being changed today because instead of being a society that believed, take a look at this scripture here coming up on the screen. We used to, of course, believe that God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. And so what would we do? We would search the scriptures as an objective source to discover what should that look like. And we'd go to God's word to guide us as to who we should be. Today in our culture, we've adopted what's, what, what is called a more progressive Christianity. And many churches are being corrupted by this that says, really, there's no objective standard. Whatever you feel matters most. And instead of being made in the image of God, we're actually making God in the image of us as long as you're happy. <laughs> and it's not just that our feelings have become God. It's also the celebration and the independence of our choice. In other words, we live in a culture today that says, you get to choose. And it's no longer, see, it used to be, God, what would you have me to do? God, where would you lead me? God, how do you want me to live? And that's how I live. Today it's, God, here's how I want to live, therefore bless me. See, there's a difference. I was thinking as I was preparing uh, this week of a man named Hobart Maurer. And at one time, you'll see a picture of him here on the screen. At one time, he was at the top of his field. He was an American psychologist. He taught at Harvard for eight years. He actually made it to the, to the top of his game. He was the president of the American Psychological Association. And he used to write a lot about um, religion and the triumph of men to free themselves from thinking in terms of sin. And he didn't want, he, he said, instead of confronting personal responsibility, he began to pose the idea that we're all really victims. It's not that we sin morally, we're just victims. Now, that's an interesting thought because today we're not really even saying that anymore. We're not even saying we're victims. Today we're saying there's just nothing wrong. <laughs> As long as you're happy, whatever you choose is fine. And you should get to choose. 
But this guy says, well, you know, we need to stop thinking in terms of sin. But then something began to happen with him. He began to think about this more and more, and he wondered where it would lead us. And he actually began to change his mind, and he begins to write letters and articles, and he said this. He said, the problem with going down this road, the problem with doing what we're doing, is that it ultimately leads us with nowhere to go, with nothing to do. There's nothing anymore to strive for. It, le it will leave us with no true sense of right or wrong. And he wrote an article about it, questioning it. And this incredible flood of response came in and letters, angry people writing to him saying, you're not telling us to get religion, are you? And he wrote back and he basically said, I don't know. All I know is when we minimize it, we're not really able to account for how sin indelibly and deeply affects us. And so at one point, he even said, go ahead, pat yourself on the back that you've gotten liberated from the idea of sin, but what you don't realize is what it's going to cost you to do it. He says, in the end, it will leave us asking, who am I? What is my final destiny? What does living mean? And Maurer noticed, in the end, we're in worse shape than when we started. Hobart Maurer ended up killing himself. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought about, for example, right around 2010, there was a big movement. It was called the New Atheist Movement. And in England, there was this huge bus campaign, and it was broadcasted all over the world. In fact, you see the bus here, but get a little better picture of it if you'd go to that next one. They, they had all these buses all over the UK that were going around, and the sign says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, so that you understand, I've gone to England many, many times. England right now, Christianity is about 10.3% of the population. Uh, England has become secularized. It's highly atheistic. Um, and uh, it, its Christian, it's Christian um, influence has greatly waned. In fact, if it keeps going the way it's going, uh, statistics show that it will be down to 8.4% of the total population by 2025. Yet, here's what's fascinating about England. They just did, last year, well, 2019, they did a, they did a little study looking at uh, people. And here's what they found out. Go ahead and pull this article. Here we go. It says, nine in ten young Britons believe their lives have no purpose. In fact, I just pulled a quote out from the report. It says, this belief that life has no meaning or purpose is the outworking of the religion of evolutionary secularism that permeates the education system and the media throughout the UK and here in the United States. And by the way, in terms of this thinking, in terms of thought system, the US is right behind. In fact, in the U.S., it's no wonder that in 2017, 43%, there was a 43% increase in suicides among the ages of 15 to 24. Suicide became the leading cause of death among that age group. Second leading cause of death, excuse me. Now, what do the statistics tell us? The statistics tell us that in spite of the increase in technology and in spite of our growth in scientific understanding, we don't seem to be able to answer the question of meaning. Why? Guys, listen. When you or I get rid of this idea of objective truth, when we get rid of the idea that there are standards to live by, then what happens is you lose your purpose. And when you lose your purpose, you lose your identity. 
I think of a guy by the name of uh, Carl Menninger who wrote a book and, and it was called Whatever Became of Sin. And one of the things that he says is what America really needs is a revival of sin because he says, look, when no one is responsible, then no one is guilty and no moral questions are then asked. And then he says, and then there's just nothing to do. And human beings sink into a despairing hopelessness with no possibility for intervention. Now guys, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Because you know that the worst thing that you can do for any human being is to say, hey, anything you want to do is okay. My goodness, any parent that has taken their child or taken their child to the market or seen a child having a tantrum in a market knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because when our kids are throwing themselves on the floor, what, what do we say to our kids? Do we say, it's okay, honey, whatever you want to do as long as you're happy. Take a look at this kid right here. What would you do? Are you going to say, well, hey, that's fine. No, because you understand as well as I do that the moment you do that, everything gets out of control. So what's the loving thing that we do? What does a loving person do? Well, because our kids are so valuable, we teach them and we love them. And so what God says is, you've got to be willing to take a look at that. You've got to understand there is something seriously wrong Probably more than you ever knew, which is why I went to the cross. But here's the second truth of a cross-based self-image. Write this down. It's that I know that something is more valuable about me, and it's more than I can imagine. Why? Because you look at what he was willing to pay to get you. Friend, I want to ask you, as you're watching this right now, what was the blood of Christ worth that was paid for you? How much are you worth to God? Infinity. Hey, let me ask you a question. I've got this apple here. Now, suppose I just said to you that this was the only apple left in the world. What would its worth be? You couldn't even assess it, could you? If this were the only apple left in the world, it would be invaluable. Well, I'm going to tell you, there was only one son of God. And look at what he did for you. First Peter puts it this way. It says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. What are you worth? That he was willing to pay that? Friend, you're worth something infinite. You see what I'm saying? Friends, I, here, here's what you've got to understand. Christians have a unique self-image because on the one hand, we understand how messed up we are, but at the same time, we understand how valued we are. In fact, if you'd write this down, this is the way I'd put it. This is the basis of a Christian self-image. There is about us what I'd call a humble boldness. Why? Because you know that you're a loved sinner. What is that? It's total confidence without a shred of self-importance. And so here's what I want to do in our remaining time. And I'm not going to take long to do it. But before we're done, I want to talk to you about what having this cross-centered identity will do for you. Where will it take you if you begin to understand these truths? Where does it lead you? 
And this is what Romans 8 and 7 was all about. So we're going to walk through it together. Here we go. Write this down. Number one, here's the first thing it'll do for you. Is you'll realize I don't ever have to be driven by fear. Why? Well, because look what it says. In fact, look closely. Let's go back to Romans real quick. It says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of, what's it say? Sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, let's go back to sonship for just a minute because that is an interesting word. Sometimes when I talk to people about sonship, people say, well, gosh, shouldn't the Bible use gender neutral language? It's like at this point in the day and age in which we live, shouldn't we translate that differently? But guys, it says sonship for a reason. And if you refuse to see its historical context, you're gonna miss something wonderful. In fact, this is actually saying something incredible about women. See, when Paul is saying in Christ, all Christians are sons, including the women, he's saying something radical. See, because when he's writing this, women are oppressed. Uh, only sons got the inheritance. Women could get no inheritance. In fact, in this day and age, in culture, it isn't that God wanted it this way. This was just common culture. Women were treated more like property. They couldn't be citizens. They certainly couldn't get an inheritance. Only sons could get the inheritance. So, when Paul says, all of you get sonship, whether you're slave or free, whether you're male or female, all of you are sons of God, he's actually saying something revolutionary. Readers in his day, in fact, they're looking at Paul saying, hey, you didn't mean everybody, did you? You're calling her a son? Because it was totally egalitarian. Yeah, he's saying no matter who you are, you're an heir. No matter who you are, you're a son. There's no difference. And he goes on, look at this. Again, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What an identity statement. And I love this last bit that we just read. It says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Why? Why is this last line so important? Because, guys, we live in a day that says your whole identity needs to be wrapped up in whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you comfortable, whatever makes you feel good about yourself. And God says to you, no, 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 your identity isn't in what makes you feel good or what makes you feel good about yourself. Your identity, he says, is found in me. And what you gain from me is so fulfilling, he says. It's so satisfying. It's so justifying that you're willing to suffer to identify with Christ. We share in his sufferings as an order that we may also share in his glory. Why? Why are you willing to do that? Because in him you have found yourself. That's what a Christ-centered identity means. Now, here's the second thing that it does for us. Write this down that we see here. That is that he's actively at work to give you desire to please him. You see, what happens when you entrust your life over to Jesus is that that spirit Paul's talking about comes to live within you and he begins to shape you and mold you. In fact, Hebrews, I don't have this scripture in your notes, but Hebrews says that he writes his law on our hearts. 
and he writes them on our minds and it strengthens us and it shows us how to live and it starts to eliminate desires that are in conflict with that and he begins to give us new desires that help us to grow but here's the key he never does it out of a spirit of fear no here's the key here look at what he says look at what John says John says no here's what happens they are reborn talk about identity they are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. What is that? <laughs> Friend, that is a spirit of sonship. That's what that is. And then number three, if you'd write this down, he then secures my place in his family. Why? Because guys, this is so exciting. I love that you're gonna see this as you study Romans. Because Paul is writing here something very, very specific. He says in verse 16, the Spirit himself, that is the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, this right here is a reference to adoption. And in the Roman world, you have to understand what adoption meant. When a child was adopted, it wasn't because of the child's performance. There is nothing the child could do to make themselves adopted, but rather it was through the legal action of the parent. Now here's the question. When a child was adopted, do you think that child knew everything that there is to know about what it means to be a part of that new family? No, of course not. I have, my youngest is an adopted son, and when we adopted him, do you think he knew automatically everything that that would mean for his life? Not at first. He's still learning. You know, I have met so many people that think that what it means to be a Christian is, I got to get myself together first. I got to pull it all together. And, and I've even said to people, would you like to commit your life to Jesus? And they'll say something like, well, no, I have to first get my life straightened out before I can do that. Now, this is important. Friends, listen to me, what, what Paul's talking about here. Adoption is not a change in your nature, but it is a change in your legal status. It means now, in spite of what you're doing, you have the rights and privileges and powers that beforehand you didn't have. And by the way, adoption in ancient times, it was an irreversible. You could never be unadopted once you were adopted it's the reason why John 1.12 says, one of my favorite scriptures says, but to all who believed him, that means to trust him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave what's called exousia. That means authority to become children of God. It's a right. It's a change in your legal status. You know, this is so exciting. There's a place in John 17 where Jesus says, Father, I want you to love them. Speaking of us, he says, Father, I want you to love them even as you love me. Now that's what adoption means. And here's what's, here's what's amazing. When I said it reshapes your whole psychology because anybody who knows that they're a son or a daughter of the king, anybody who remembers that, internalizes that, understands that, you realize you never have to be defensive. You never have to worry you never have anything to prove. Why? Because you know that you're a son or a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Look again, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. No, but you received that spirit of sonship and we have freedom. And you're not afraid anymore to let people see who you are. You're not afraid to let them see the worst parts of you. By the way, I'm not either. Why? Because if he accepts me, who cares what anybody else thinks? Because God's for me. And what happens is your whole identity gets reshaped because you have nothing to prove. Now, here's how it works. Listen, when a person has something to prove, have you noticed what kind of people they are? Have you ever met somebody like that? They've always got something to prove. Usually they're a controlling person or a defensive person. Usually they're a manipulative kind of person or an envious person. But, you know, you meet them and they're like gossips or insecure. But I'm going to say this to you. If that's you, and only you know in your heart if that's you, when you are those things, you're acting like a slave. You're not acting like a child. You're acting like a slave. You're not acting like a son. Why would you say, well, what do you mean? Well, you're a slave to your own performance. You're a slave to your own image. You're a slave to your own need to prove yourself. You want to prove your worth to everybody. You want to prove your value. See, what you haven't gotten yet is sonship. And I want to say to you, I pray for you because you've got to be exhausted. And God looks at you and says, I've got something better for you. Listen, you may be even watching this wherever you are. And you may be even religious and you're being moral out of a spirit of fear. God doesn't want you to move in fear. He wants to make you a son or a daughter. And then you know what he does? It's, it's incredible. Write this down. He makes it deeply personal. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he goes on. Again, let's look at, let's look at part of this. He says again, you didn't receive the spirit that makes you a slave. No, no, no. You received the spirit and by him, that spirit, we cry, Abba. In other words, it's the spirit living in you that gets you to pray Abba. Now, any Jew at this time, any pagan, any Gentile, anybody listening to this in the first century and they heard Jesus refer to God as Abba or they heard Paul refer to God as Abba, it would have split their eardrums. It would have blown them away. I mean, they would have been absolutely thunderstruck. Why? Well, because God is a consuming fire. God is the transcendent God of all being. You, you can't call him Abba. How could you go before a consuming fire and call him Abba? Why? Because Abba means daddy. How do you call a consuming fire daddy? Daddy, I have something to talk to you about. And nobody had ever thought of this before, by the way, that the universal God of the cosmos is your daddy, your father. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? You know what... Paul's talking about when you're adopted when when you can call him daddy what it really means is in fact you might want to write this down on the side of your notes it means that you have unbelievable access to God because what Jesus is saying here is a father who will let you bother him he even says get this it's the spirit of God that leads you to bother him 
He says, if the Spirit of God lives in you, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, it's the Spirit of sonship, and by Him, because of that Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. It's just incredible. Adoption means access. Friends, listen to me. Just listen. Think about the highest levels of authority. Kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers. You don't go after them. But if you're their little children, you can walk right up to them and say, hey, would you help me tie my shoelaces? And you know what? They would stoop to do it. Why? Because you're their child. He's saying you have access and you have the right to do that with God. He makes it deeply personal. When you join the family of God, that's what you get. By the way, this is why around here at North Point, we're constantly talking about what it means to have a personal relationship with God or a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's why through our core classes, we're consistently teaching about what that means. How do you grow in a very personal relationship? Not just know about God, but know him deeply and personally. It's why I'm constantly encouraging people to join us for early morning prayer on Tuesdays and Thursdays now. It's grown so much, we've expanded to Thursdays, but it's because people are coming together and calling on God and they're saying, Jesus, I want to know you and walk with you and talk to you about everything that's going on in my life. By the way, I, I invite you to do that if you want to. Just, uh, you can do that through Zoom or in person right here in the back of our worship center. We've been meeting with masks, but we've been meeting, calling on God together. Why? Because he's your father. It's identity building. If you'd like to join us for that, you just email me, pastorshane at northpoint.org. We'll get you a link to the Zoom or get you instructions. Now, let me give you this fifth thing. If you just write this down, he gives you hope for, the, for your future. Because look how Romans goes on. Look at what it says. It says, you are heirs of God and you are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, further down in this chapter, he describes this right down at verse 19. And I want to read it to you. He says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Because against its will, all creation at a specific point in history was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation itself looks forward to the day when it will join God's, with God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Isn't that amazing? Verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And I love verse 23. Makes it personal. And even we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, even we believers struggle. Even we believers go through pain. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. See, there's still that thing going on in our identity. We still have to contend with it. It says we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us, watch this, ready? Underline this line our full rights as his adopted children. It is a legal right that you will get. And right now he says, right now you're just given a taste. You're gonna get it in full, including the new physical bodies that he's promised us when we were given this hope, when we were saved. 
You know, guys, I was so excited to read this passage to you. I was thinking about this. You know, 700 years before this, I talked about Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah's right. He says when he, when he well, Jesus comes back to rule the earth, it says, notice here, it says, you and me will go out with joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And I love this. It says, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, you look at trees and they're pretty beautiful. But it says even they're going to be something much greater than they are now because they're going to clap their hands. On that day, can you imagine what you're going to be like? Can you imagine what I'm going to be like? I mean, if the trees are dancing on that day, what are you going to be doing? All the trees of the fields will clap their hands. You say, well, why does it matter? Well, why do you think Paul was able to face anything? The one who wrote Romans? Why do you think the apostle Paul was able to face suffering and death? Paul says, for we, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. He says, I suffer, you suffer. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. But how did he endure it? <laughs> I'll tell you how. It's because he was always thinking of his inheritance of what's to come. Paul would say these little sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that God is going to reveal. And it gave him hope. Do you understand your inheritance? Do you know that it helps you? In fact, if you understand your inheritance, just fill this in. You understand then that the greatest times in your life are leavable. I mean, as good as it's gotten for you, if you understand your inheritance, you're able to say, it's okay, when I go, it's gonna be so much more glorious than I could imagine. The greatest times in your life are leavable and the worst times in your life are bearable. Why? Because you look at these five things, speaking about your tremendous value. Do you see these things? Let me just close with this. There is a place in in the gospel where Jesus, he prays, Abba, Father. It was in the garden. It was in the garden of Gethsemane. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. When you go to Israel with us, we'll take you to this garden of Gethsemane. But he's in this garden, and he says, Father, Abba, he cries out, Abba, I don't want to die. But if I have to die, if this is the only way to do it, your will be done. See what he did there? Do you see what he had to say? He had to say Abba and he had to go to the cross so that we'd be able to say that word too. And I just ask you this, friends, are you applying that to your life? Do you pray relentlessly and shamelessly, audaciously, personally, consciously? Do you know that you have nothing to prove to anybody anymore? And do you understand your inheritance so, so much that you can say, you know, the greatest times in my life, they're leavable and the worst times are bearable because God, you're so good and everything I have is in you. Are you living as a son or a daughter of the king? I'm gonna pray that you can. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for each person that is uh, listening to this message today. Jesus, thank you that the cross changes everything. 
that you came to the cross to provide us with true freedom. Thank you that you tell us what that is. That you went to the cross to provide us with freedom from guilt, that we can get out from under the load of our own guilt. And Jesus, you went to the cross to reshape our identity, that we'd, we'd have the proper view of self. We'd know on the one hand how desperately we need you, but we'd also know how much you love us and how valuable we are to you. God, thank you that you're making those things real to us. Lead us, Jesus. And if you're watching this today and you don't know Jesus Christ, but you'd like to, I just wanna invite you just to pray this prayer with me. And you could just say it in the quietness of your, of your own home or wherever you're watching from. Dear Jesus, I want to commit my life to you. I want to trust you. I confess my sin. I'm in worse shape than I thought. Now come into my life and be my savior and be my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.